Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, church. Let's take out our Bibles today and turn to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 25. Uh, if you're new here, uh, my name's Nate, and what we do is we choose books of the Bible and we move through them, and this is our 15th study in uh, the book of Exodus together. So Exodus chapter 25, if you guys would turn there in your Bibles. By the way, that uh, announcement for the men's conference, that was Josh White who was going to be speaking at the conference, and uh, he was talking about his book that he released this last year, some of which the content and themes will bleed into the Christus Victor theme of the men's conference. So I just kind of wanted to clarify that because that was a little bit confusing to me, like, Christus Victor, here's a book you should get. Christus Victor, so that we've got a men's conference coming up, and that's Josh White, who's gonna be speaking at it. He's a great guy, and I can't wait for all the men to hear uh, from him. Uh, at this point uh, in Exodus, uh, and our whole point in uh, studying the book of Exodus is to know God. I mean, that's sort, sort of the, the point of studying scripture. Let's get to know God. Who is he? How does he reveal himself? Uh, and I wanna encourage you guys. We're in the second half of Exodus right now. We only actually have two more teachings, I think, after this one uh, before we finish the book of Exodus. Um, but some of you might feel like these aren't the good portions of Exodus, like you like the battle with Pharaoh and the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. And I get that that's exciting and everything, but let me ask you a question. Do you wanna be the kind of Christian who just gets saved rescued and then does not grow? Or do you wanna be the kind of person that gets rescued and then God continues to rewire you and reshape you into the image of Jesus? Um, I don't know how you feel, but I'm pretty sure that the people in your life at least want you to be the second version. And uh, in the second half of the book of Exodus, that's what's happening. God is speaking to his people to help reshape them. So uh, uh, today what I wanna do is... Um, Chapter 25 through 31 deals with the instructions concerning the tabernacle and the priesthood. And I just wanna read a, a handful of verses from that larger passage uh, today and then talk to you about that larger passage uh, that we're going to read about. So I'm gonna start all the way back in chapter 24, uh, verse 12, where the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And then in chapter 25, verse one, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, verse eight, that I may dwell in their midst." Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern on the t of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Okay, now let's jump forward to chapter 28. 
in between 25 and 28 are the directions, how to build the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar, the court, the oil, the altar of incense. Then, verse one of chapter 28, bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Okay, now jump forward to chapter 31. In between 28 and 31 is a description of the priesthood and all the garments in detail. And in verse 12 of chapter 31, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I've filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahai Samech of the tribe of Dan, and I've given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And uh, verse 12, jump down to there. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And uh, finally, to wrap up this section, let's look all the way at verse 18 in chapter 31. And God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this holy ground that your book slows down to ask us to consider. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for tabernacling with us, coming for us, Thank you for making your home inside of us now as Christians, as believers. Uh, but we do pray that you would take this Old Testament passage for the redeemed people of Israel and that you would apply it into our lives today. Help us to learn of and from you. In Jesus' name we pray together, amen, amen. Okay, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, at this point in Exodus, we know that Yahweh has already rescued Israel from Egypt, and now he is reinventing Israel. They needed that because they've been programmed by their slavery in Egypt. So God is speaking to them. God is helping them. This is, by the way, what we want. This is what we desire the Lord would do in our lives. Lord, I'm inviting you till the day that I meet you face to face. I want you to reinvent me. <laughs> I want you to speak to me. I want you to shape me. I want, I want my life to be uh, shaped by who you are, your vision for who I am. Now, uh, at the beginning of Exodus, you, you might have forgotten this detail, it was a little while ago, but uh, when God spoke to Moses out in the wilderness when he was just a shepherd for his father-in-law, he spoke to him at a bush that was burning that yet not consumed. You guys remember that episode? Just nod your head. I'm gonna get really into it if you don't give me some feedback right now. So he, he, he meets with God and God says to him, you're gonna go into Egypt, you're gonna confront Pharaoh and when the people are set free, you're gonna come back to me on this very mountain 
and you're gonna worship me, serve me, and I'm gonna speak to you. And that's what we've been thinking about the last few weeks together in the book of Exodus. They had gathered at that mountain just as God had said. And uh, the first thing that we saw God do there at that mountain is in chapter 19 where he gave them an invitation. It was kind of like a marriage proposal. Do you want to come into this covenant relationship with me? They didn't know the details yet of the covenant, but they knew God said, if you, if you keep this covenant, if you enter into it, you'll be my treasured possession and you'll be a holy nation. You'll be a kingdom of priests to the world. You guys are gonna be my broadcast mechanism for who I am and my nature to the world that does not know me. And Israel resoundingly said, yeah, we want in on that covenant. We wanna be part of and in this relationship uh, with you. So God told them to prepare themselves because three days later, at the base of the mountain, as they approached Mount Sinai, God descended upon that mountain and God began to thunder out the 10 commandments. It was an amazing time. It was a beautiful life that a beautiful God described for the people of Israel. And after those 10 commandments were uttered by God, God invited Moses up the mountain and he has a personal one-on-one meeting with God where God gives to him the book of the covenant. These are probably laws that extended from the 10 commandments that were meant to govern the lives of the people of Israel at that time. Moses goes back down the mountain. He announces the book of the covenant to the people. They say, we're gonna keep that book. That's what we need to do. And then the beautiful thing that they do next is they offer a sacrifice to God on his altar, and Moses takes the blood of that sacrifice and he throws it on everybody. And it's kind of like this, this real loud statement of, yes, we're a people of the covenant. Yes, we're a people of the Ten Commandments. Yes, we're a people of the book, but we're also people. And uh, we are not gonna keep this perfectly. We need grace. And God had given grace He had installed it. He had made a way for them to be forgiven and cleansed and covered of and from their sin. After that moment, it says in 2415 that Moses took his assistant Joshua and went back up the mountain for a sixth time now to interact with God. This trip up the mountain was a 40-day meeting with God. During that time, in this massive passage that we received today, God commissions the people of Israel to build him a house, to build him a tabernacle. Now, nearly all of the rest of Exodus, from 25 onward, deals with this tabernacle. Now, first, Moses is gonna receive the plans to the tabernacle. There will be a brief three-chapter interlude that we're gonna look at next week where the people are having a rager down in the valley below and Moses comes down, they've broken every single commandment, he throws them on the ground and it's like, what's God going to do? That's the question of next week. And then the story picks up, spoiler alert, God renews the covenant and they build the tabernacle. And the end of Exodus for like six chapters describes like almost verbatim the passage that we have here today. God describes what they should build and then God describes them building it in this slow, painstaking detail. Now, I know that that incrementally slow detailing of the temple complex has perplexed a lot of Christians. I mean, for one, maybe it's just like a base level, like 
oh man, this is kind of frustrating. I'm reading along in my Bible. I love the battle with Pharaoh. I love the parting of the waters. I love the manna and all that. And then I've got like, it feels like two weeks of reading about the tabernacle itself. Listen, here's like a little, I'm just gonna give you like a pro tip for reading the Bible. When you're reading scripture and everything's like moving real fast, you can know that God, God isn't caught up in those details. So like at the beginning of the book, when it's like Moses is born, then Moses is 40, then Moses is 80, and it's just like you're on speed. It's because God's like, I don't care about that part of the story. Then you get to this part where it just slows down. And God's like, you need to build me an ark, and here's how this ark is gonna look, and here's what's gonna be inside of it, and it's all these details. And then later, he's like, and then they built me an ark, and it was like this, and it had all these details, and here's what was inside of it. This is our way of knowing God, God is into this. And because he is, we're supposed to be asking questions. Why did the text slow down? Why, why did the, the God who made everything and took like a couple chapters in Genesis to describe it take 13 chapters here in Exodus to break down the tabernacle complex. And what are we supposed to do as Christians with the myriad of materials and metals and instruments and garments and sacrifice uh, that inhabit these directions? You know, what should we do? What should we do with this passage of scripture? Should, should we slowly grind our way through it in like a 17-week study looking at the details of the tabernacle complex. Some of you guys would be super into that, and I'm sorry to burst your bubble, we're not doing that. <laughs> should, we, should we get all up in the types and allusions to Jesus that are found all throughout? You know, the ark was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold, the acacia wood pointing to the humanity of Jesus, the gold pointing to the divinity of Jesus. Like these are, I think, true things, but what's that gonna do for you this week? You know, like, wow, I learned this great thing. It's super cool. No idea how to apply that to my life or how to get any help for my walk with God today. Now, I'm not knocking those elements. I mean, if I am knocking, I kind of am. But I'm knocking myself because I've, I've tried all these things. I've, I've taught the Bible that way. I've, I've communicated that way. And I've, they're on record. If you want to go study the Bible that way with me, I'd be glad to have you join me. Uh, but today, what I want to do is fly over this tabernacle passage to discover some key truths about God. You know, the, the Bible can teach us in a lot of different ways, but one of the coolest ways that the Bible can teach us is through powerful imagery. And the, the temple and its precincts, it just like emblazons itself on the psyche of the people of Israel, and it can emblaze itself on our hearts as well. It's a building, it's a tent, it's a structure, it's tangible. And through those tangible realities, there are spiritual truths that God wants to communicate with us. So I wanna show you uh, three things today about this passage that I think we can learn from the Lord. And, and the first one is this, God wants to meet with his people. Uh, I think we, we miss this a lot when we look at the tabernacle. We, we start getting into the, the, okay, the bronze is on the outside of the tabernacle, the bronze altar, the bronze uh, labor where they wash their hands. The bronze is on the outside because that's like a human metal. The gold is on the inside because God is divine. Like that's true probably. But we often miss that the whole point of the tent uh, was so that God could meet with his people. In fact, so often in the book of Exodus and all throughout the Old Testament, the tent is called the tent of meeting. It's like, this is, 
the house that God is gonna be at because he wants to meet with his people. Look at 25.8. God said, here's his vision statement for this structure. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That I may dwell in their midst. This is, like already I know that this is corrective for a lot of us in our thinking about the tabernacle. Because a lot of us read about the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the feasts and all these steps that were required for people to have fellowship with God. And and our way of reading it is God is really exclusive. God is like building all these barriers and walls to himself, but that is not the story of the tabernacle. If that was like the last stage of redemptive history, you might make that case. But it's one of the first stages. Humanity blew it in the garden and God is coming in and saying, I am breaking into this world. I am knocking down barriers. The big barrier is humanity's sin. I'm a holy God, so I'm gonna make a way for you guys to be able to know me. I want to dwell in your midst. And of course, this is fully fulfilled in Jesus, who when he came and tabernacled among us and was slaughtered for us, made the way whereby we can be forgiven of all of our sin and cry out to God as we sang this morning as our heavenly father. This is not imagery that is meant to say God is trying to be distant. This is imagery that is meant to say God is stepping towards his people. Now, later on in the history of Israel, um, this, this tent would become a permanent structure. But right now it's a tent. And the reason for that is because uh, God didn't want them to build a permanent structure there at Mount Sinai. He didn't want to be a God that was once they were in the promised land, they'd have to say, hey, let's go on a pilgrimage and visit God outside of our land. No, God wanted to be with them. And so he he loved what was happening at Sinai, but this tent is like a little mini Sinai that's gonna go with them. The cloud, the smoke, the glory of God, because God is saying, I want to be among my people. Now, in case you're not convinced by my angle on the tabernacle, that it's basically God making a move to try to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden, I want to draw your attention to a couple of parallels between the Garden of Eden and this tabernacle structure. I mean, in Eden, you guys might remember that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was one of the first events that happened? They understood their nakedness. They covered themselves and hid themselves from God, who it says when he walked in the garden in the cool of the day said, man, where are you? The the idea is, is that that was the norm before sin entered into our species. God walking in the garden, the meeting place between himself and his people in total unbroken fellowship with them. God is restoring that with this tabernacle. Uh, One of the clues that points us in that direction is that when Eden was created, how many days of creation were there? there? There were seven days of creation, six days of actual creation, and then the seventh day being the day that God rested from his work, the seventh day. Uh, as you go through Exodus 25 to 31, uh, it could have said like hundreds of times, the Lord said, but the way it's written, 
there are only seven times it says the Lord said. It seems like it's meant to be reminding us of the seven times that God spoke creation. Seven times he spoke the creative word about this tabernacle. Like Eden, the Sabbath is mentioned with the Lord's seventh saying. So the seventh time the Lord says in Exodus 25 and 31, what does he say? He says, keep the Sabbath. Uh, What is the seventh day of creation? The day of God's Sabbath rest. Uh, Like the paradise of Eden, the tabernacle was filled with precious metals and spices and produce and images of fruit. And if you go back and read Genesis chapter two, that's exactly how Eden is described, a place of bounty and fruitfulness and precious metals. And just as the Garden of Eden was closed to Adam and Eve after their sin, when the cherubim were placed at its entrance, so the cherubim were depicted on the tabernacle curtains and on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And just as Eden had the tree of life in it, so the tabernacle had a lampstand inside of it that resembled a tree complete with branches and almond blossoms engraved and popping off of it. In other words, the tabernacle was brimming with God's Genesis intention that we would be in loving relationship with him. So when God calls this tent the tent of meeting, we can know that he is reclaiming a small holy space to carry out his original plans for humanity. And as long as Israel prioritized this facility, there would always be an Edenic place on earth where God dwelt with man. Now, the reality, though, is that because of our sin, there had to be a way to deal with it. And in that era, God developed this tabernacle, the the sacrifices, the confession of sin, the, the sin sacrifice, the guilt offerings so that humanity could be in fellowship with him. A God in this structure is said to be at the innermost room of the tabernacle dwelling on top of the Ark of the Covenant where the lid had angels' wings touching. That's where God said he would dwell. And it's the first thing described in this tabernacle complex because it starts with God and emanates out from him. But it's God saying all of this, the priesthood, the garments, the gold, the bronze, all of it is there so that you and me can be in fellowship together. Look, I just wanna say it this way. I'm certain that you and I do not understand or know or comprehend how interested God is in us as his people. But my prayer is that the image of the tabernacle can help us. Doesn't the ornate design or the intricate worship or the tabernacle itself speak to us of God's deep love for his people. He wants to be in our midst. Now, to me, when it says in John three sixteen that God so loved the world, to me, the tabernacle is an illustration of that heart of God. He wants to be in our midst. Uh, for me, whenever I, you know, whether on a vacation or something, get a chance to, uh, tour an art museum of some kind, uh, I, I'd probably be like an interesting person to follow around because I, I try my best to 
really act like I know what I'm doing, you know? So I'll go in front of a sculpture or an old painting or something, and I like to just look at it and, you know, tilt my head to the side and ask myself questions like, what does this mean? And what does this mean to me? And what feelings am I having right now? And usually there's not much going on, but that's kind of my, my thing. I never took an art history class. I, I've never read lots of books. It has never been my interest to get into the study of what art is and its history and all that stuff. So I kind of have no idea what I'm looking at. There's just a general appreciation like, wow, look at that. Somebody could do that, that's great, you know? Or, or like you look at a Jackson Pollock piece and you're like, I'm pretty sure I could do that, I think. <laughs> I think I got this, you know, kind of thing. C- contrast that with someone who's an, an art history major or has, is an artist themselves, it's a totally different experience, right? They're gonna slowly move through. They might even say to themselves, like, I can't even expect to go through this whole museum today. I'm going to such and such a corridor or a piece, and I'm just gonna sit with it for a while. I'm gonna look at it, I'm gonna observe it, observe it, I'm gonna soak it in, because they have a better idea of what it is that they're observing. And when we say things like, God loves you, God wants to be in a relationship with you, God wants to you know, spend time with you and for you to spend time with him, these are beautiful statements. They're, they're true statements. But the tabernacle helps us get like a deeper understanding of how complex and powerful that is. For God to spend time with us, for him to enjoy and relate to us, for us to enjoy him, it's not just this flippant thing, is it? I mean, you look at the tabernacle with all the blood and sacrifice and the slow approach and the priesthood, and it really helps you appreciate what Jesus did for us to make a way for us to meet with God. So, But that's the first thing I want you to see is that I think this passage helps us appreciate that God wants to meet with us. The second thing, though, that I want you to see is that I think we should recognize that there's a triumph of grace that is embedded at the center of this entire structure. This whole thing, it can be really intimidating for modern Christians, you know, the blood of bulls and goats, animal sacrifice, like it's just not the most appealing thing. It doesn't go good with our cream cheese and bagels after service, you know? Like it's just like, a, wow, this is, I'm so glad we don't do this, you know, kind of thing. It's like maybe our first reaction. We can be intimidated by all this. Uh, in our text today, we didn't read this line directly, but in 28 and 30, God warned Aaron's sons about performing the priestly duties according to God's directions so that they may not die, it says. I mean, that's like intimidating to us. Um, The blood is like cast around throughout these passages. It's like sprinkled on garments and altars and earlobes and feet and toes and fingers. And once each year, the book of Leviticus tells us the high priest would go into the holy, holiest compartment of the tabernacle, the holy of holies, and sprinkle the blood of the national sacrifice on the day of atonement on the Ark of the Covenant. And that's the first thing described in this whole passage, the Ark of the Covenant. Like I said, that's where God was to dwell. It had to be described with God and his Ark as the starting place, pushing outward from the center at its description. 
But we have to remember as we think of all that, the blood and the sacrifice, the tabernacle's place in redemptive history. You know, God's hand had been forced in Eden, as I've been saying, and humanity for their protection was banished from God's presence. He's love, but he's also holy, holy, and anything unholy cannot handle the full blast of his glory. So this tabernacle was trying to help them become a holy people. And once Jesus came, the pathway to becoming fully and permanently holy in God the Father's sight was paved. But at this point in the story, the tabernacle was as good as it got. God designed all this as a road back to himself. And I wanna say this today, the tremendous reality here is that it worked. A lot of Christians will talk about the Old Testament tabernacle system as if God was like setting up this thing that he's like, I know this ain't gonna work, but I'm just gonna give this to you anyways for like a couple thousand years. But, but this was, as long as they held to it, it worked and it was in anticipation of the coming of the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. I mean, as long as they kept this covenant, they were meeting with God through the tabernacle and its system. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, you should come away with that conclusion. Like in Isaiah, many of you guys know this passage where Isaiah's, you know, God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. You guys ever heard that passage? Well, that whole episode occurs because for five chapters, Israel's sin is described, and then Isaiah himself goes to the temple. He's at the temple, and he's worshiping, and he has a vision of God on his throne room in the Holy of Holies, and he recognizes, oh, I'm sinful like the whole nation. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then God cleanses him from his sin, and then he calls him. Like the temple was a place where God's people met with God. Read the Psalms. So often they're singing about meeting with God at his temple. It worked because the reality or the triumph of God's grace was occurring in that place. Again, all anticipatory of the coming of Jesus. He had to come for it to really work, but in that era, it was working. And like I said, many of us read these details with a sigh of relief that Jesus fulfilled all these elements for us. You know, we don't, we don't like the idea of coming to worship like is described in the tabernacle. But I wanna say today, I think that relief might miss the point a little bit. Gospel-loving Jesus followers are intensely blood and sacrifice-oriented people, maybe even more so than the original people of Israel. We believe that the blood of bulls and goats could never permanently remove the stain of sin, but it, that it took the blood of the incarnate Son of God to save us. We're convinced an animal's sacrifice could never really do the trick. God himself had to become one of us and shed his blood on our behalf and rise from the grave. As Hebrews said, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We are, in other words, a people of his blood. Look at Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by what? By the blood of Jesus. Okay, that's who we are. We're an intensely blood and sacrifice-oriented people. Jesus said, you gotta eat my flesh. You gotta drink my blood. Of course, not literally, but he's, he's pointing to a greater reality. And I love this. It's, the, it's speaking of, man, this worked. 
That, that blood, it's speaking of the triumph of God's grace to bring people back to himself. Um, I don't know what it is about me, but just something in my personality. Ever since I was a little boy, I prided myself on having good handwriting. Even today, if somebody sees my handwriting and they're like, dude, that's good handwriting, I get a little, my ego gets boosted a little bit. Like I just kinda, I don't know what it was. I think when they busted out those big things with the upper line and the lower line and the dot, dot, dot line in the middle, and they're like, you can make it perfect. I think for me, I was like, oh, heck yes, I love this. I'm gonna make it perfect. It's just kinda, I'm not very fun to hang out with, but good handwriting. <laughs> But I had this obstacle, I've always had this obstacle, I'm left-handed. And I, it used to frustrate me so much as a little kid that you'd crack up if you saw me writing something today by hand because I, my hand like hooks around the paper. I'm trying to write like a right-handed person so that my hand doesn't drag across my writing and smear the page. But you get a few lines down and pretty soon your hand starts messing it up. I remember being a kid, I'd, I'd we'd do writing assignments and I'd have just a blue ink all down the side of my hand. It was really hard, you guys. I'm trying to be honest with you about this difficult part of my life. You need to sympathize with me a little bit more. I, I think to, to me that smeared ink, it's like a great metaphor for life. You know, no matter how hard we try to be obedient to the Lord and honor the Lord with our lives and live our lives for him, be a covenant people, be a people of loyalty towards God. As much as, as we might want that, our, our flesh, our, our sin, our, our shortcomings, it kind of still smears the page, right? What, what do we need? We, we need grace. We need mercy. We need God's cleansing and the, the, tabern, the tabernacle, like it was working then, how much more so on this side of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus can we say it works? Christ has come, his blood has been shed, and it cleanses us of our sin. Okay, let me give you one last thing, and you guys might not like this one as much. I think the third thing that we should consider is that all these directions surrounding the tabernacle, they were a true test of Israel's earnestness. The question being, did these Hebrew people really want God? Were they genuine in their desire to keep his covenant? Their response to these pages would tell the story. Like I said, this might not be the one that we like as much. The first two points I made are like intensely gospel-oriented, like Jesus-y churches say that kind of stuff all the time. God wants to meet with you. You're like, yeah, he does. Of course he does. Man, he's so good. Or the triumph of grace. Oh, man, I needed to hear that today. I had a bad week, you know. I wasn't what I wanted to be, the triumph of grace this last one, that God is putting this out there to test their earnestness, might be a little bit of a challenge to us. But throughout the directions, the phrase, you shall, is repeated 150 times. You shall make, you shall put, you shall set, you shall hang, you shall receive, you shall bring. On repeat, God is giving directions to the people of Israel. It was up to them on whether they would obey his word or not. They were to do, and it's very meticulous how God says it, everything according to the plan you are shown on the mountain. We, have, we can't mess around with what God said. 
everything according to the plan. On top of this, the entire passage is bracketed with the responsibility that's on these redeemed people. It starts, the whole thing kicks off with God saying, there needs to be an offering, and whoever wants in, they can bring all these materials that we're gonna repurpose for the tabernacle. And it ends with God saying uh, that there are two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, who would take those materials and build them. So this is God saying to Israel, look, I can take the Ten Commandments and I can write them with my finger on a tablet of stone, but I want you guys to build the house. God could have just materialized it if he wanted to, but he wanted them to be involved in this process. That's, that's partly why I think the very last thing in this whole episode that is mentioned is that God says, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you. It's like God is saying, look, this is the big keystone habit. The second ha- the second the Sabbath goes away in your life, you're probably not gonna do any of these things. So keep the Sabbath, that'll keep you on track, and then be obedient. You know, he, uh, He's testing them. Are you a people who are earnest about this or not? Now, I think that God's invitation for them to build the structure, it, it extended to every future generation after the structure was built. It wasn't so much, are you gonna build the structure, but it was, are you gonna maintain the structure? Are you gonna visit the structure? Are you gonna raise up priests for the structure? Are you gonna come to God's house? Are you gonna worship the Lord? Are you gonna pursue him? Are you gonna seek his face? In fact, one way that you can understand all the Old Testament prophets, like I don't know if you guys have gotten there in your Christian journey yet, but to read Isaiah through Malachi, the prophets that spoke to the ancient people of Israel, one way to read them is as a pleading from God whenever his bride said, you know what, we're not as into this covenant as we said we were, and they drifted from God, God would send these messengers saying, come back to the covenant. Come back to God's house. Come back to the tabernacle, or by their time, come back to the temple. Prioritize God again. Uh, In fact, many of the prophets use the phrase or the exhortation, seek the Lord. Like Hosea, the first of the minor prophets, when he said beautifully, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. I think that this exhortation or exhortations like these extend into the church era as well. I mean, remember Revelation 2 and 3 when Jesus, through the Apostle John, spoke to the seven churches in Turkey or Asia Minor at that time? Uh, To the church in Ephesus, Jesus said, you guys are an amazing church. You've done some amazing things, but here's what I have against you. You've left your first love. You need to repent and you need to return to the very first deeds. I need to see that earnestness once again. And at the end of those seven letters, Jesus exhorted the lukewarm Laodicean church to come to terms with their spiritual bankruptcy and begin turning to him in a genuine way. Jesus was looking for those who would accept the invitation of his knock and open the door. He said, if you do, if you open the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's important to note, that's not an evangelistic verse. It's not Jesus talking to people who don't know him 
and saying, I'm knocking at the door of your heart. If you open up, I'll come in and fellowship with you, although that is biblically accurate and true. In context, in Revelation 3, it's Jesus talking to a lukewarm church of believers who felt like they had it all going on on their own and, and weren't spiritually hungry anymore. And he's saying, I'm outside. I'm knocking on the door of your heart. Open up. I wanna have fellowship with you. Open that door. Show me your earnestness to have a walk with me. To me, Jesus' invitations sound so similar to Yahweh's invitation to Israel to build his tabernacle so that he might dwell in their midst. It's what the Lord desires of us. He wants to bring us into this relationship with himself. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, with confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help him in our time of need. The Lord invites us to pursue him, so let us earnestly and boldly enter in. I want you to imagine with me going to a wedding that is just downright awkward. Uh, and the reason for the awkwardness at this wedding I'm asking you to imagine today is because of the radical disparity of eagerness and excitement between the bride and the groom. Imagine the groom, he's excited, he's present, he's crying as she walks down the aisle, and as she walks down the aisle, you turn your attention and you see she's still in her pajamas. You know, she's just, no makeup, no nothing, just like kind of shoulders droop, like, nah, whatever, I guess I gotta do this. You know, they do the vow, she goes through the motions, the, the, reception, you know, they're cutting the cake and he's all into it, smushing the cake in her face and she's just like, you know, walking away that's dancing on the dance floor and she's not out there. You know, imagine that, that disparity. It would break your heart. It would break your heart. You know, the Lord is looking at Israel and he's saying, okay, you've said that you want in to know me, to have a relationship with me. I certainly have shown you I want that with you. I am earnest in my desire. I, I slayed Egyptians so that I could have you to myself. I've made promises to your ancestors so many hundreds of years ago so that you could be my people. I parted the waters of the Red Sea so that I could make you mine. You're, you're my firstborn son, you're that, but now I wanna introduce a new facet or angle to the diamond of our relationship. You're also my bride. I want you to be mine, my people. Will you, he's saying to Israel, reciprocate? And I think he says the same thing to us. He wants to bring us into that relationship with himself. Now, in case it's not clear by this point of the teaching, the tabernacle structure that was built back then was a temporary thing. We don't need it anymore. Jesus came, John says he tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. And now when we believe in Jesus, the spirit of God comes to live not in the ark or the holy of holies, but in our human hearts, dwelling with us, knowing us, engaging with us. So when you become a believer in Jesus, you gain access to the entirety of God. And I realize saying that to some of you might sound like you gained access to the entirety of Mount Everest. Like, where do I start? How do I climb? I'm not fit for that. But the Spirit of God, the Bible teaches, comes to live inside of you. Paul the Apostle told the Corinthian church that the Spirit 
in you helps search the deep things of God so that you can know what God has done for you and how he feels about you. Spirit of God himself helping you understand and know the God who rescued you. So Jesus has come, he has dwelt among us, and now because of his blood, we can truly serve the living God. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.